3, 6 of the Pew Bibles and comes from Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20 and beginning at verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who'd been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who, are, who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulphur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, even when it is a, a tough passage like the one we've just heard. We thank you, Lord, for the truths that are there waiting for us. 
And we thank you, Lord, that it's the Holy Spirit who leads us into all truth. So we pray tonight that you will just help us to go deeper into this passage, take out of it what is relevant for us right now, and that you would make us obedient to your truth in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes, it is one of the tough passages. I was also given Revelation 13. I can't believe I chose either of them. Um, they are difficult passages, but as always with God's word, you get into it, and there is blessing there. There's things to be excited about. I'm not going to pretend to cover this passage as it deserves in all its various ways, um, partly because I probably can't, and human wisdom will never get to the bottom of it. A lot of this will be revealed fully, revealed fully uh, in a much later time. But it does have some really important truths for us. Um, one of the great truths in this controversial chapter is in verse 2, where it talks about Satan being dealt with and being thrown into the abyss and locked up and sealed. He's going to be let out a bit later, according to this vision of John. But Satan is well and truly being dealt with within this chapter. And that is heartening, because when we look at the world around us today, we probably still feel he's pretty active. And the church at times seems almost powerful, uh, powerless, even though we know that the victory is won through Jesus and the cross. So we have this idea of the millennium, the thousand years. Um, it's been taken literally over history by many people. And each person's literal interpretation tends to be rather different from the others. So it is a, a recipe for confusion if we're careless with this chapter. I'm going to try to avoid that and perhaps help all of us to do further homework and come out of the other end of it actually edified rather than even more confused. There are some key truths in here, though, and that's what we're going to um, cover tonight. I think human nature is such, certainly in our family, where we like to know exactly where we stand. We like to plan ahead. We almost like to plan the steps. I do notes before we go on holiday about possible restaurants, taverners, whatever. It's probably very sad, and not every family is quite the same. But generally, we like to know where we are. I think that's human nature. Although the younger generation, if uh, we judge uh, from our children, they don't mind things being rather last minute. But we would like to know, wouldn't we, exactly where we stand, the second coming, judgment of the dead, resurrection of our bodies, the new bodies we're going to be given, what heaven's going to be like, and so on. And it is a little bit frustrating that we never quite get there, and we're not meant to. Jesus was quite clear about that, and we'll come back to that later. Revelation, we need to keep reminding ourselves, is a dramatic, pictorial, almost poetic book and it's in that tradition of apocalyptic literature that most of us have never read or never will read and actually it's quite a restrained although it seems to us incredibly dramatic and colorful uh, part of the bible but actually it is reasonably restrained compared to some of the other apocalyptic books the difference between it and the other types of uh, literature are actually that it has immense hope 
and gives us real security for our futures and for the church's future. I looked at a few commentaries, as one does, before preparing, and I kept finding that they all seemed to be taking a particular and usually different line from the other commentators. It seemed that everything was interpreted around when Jesus will come again, when the millennium will be, after he comes again, before, all this stuff that we'd like to know, wouldn't we just? And I came up with this silly quote, uh, it's pure me, but it reflects some of what people say about the way this chapter is often dealt with. If you were to line up a group of evangelical vicars together and ask them to talk about the millennium, and, you know, use all the long theological words they can think of, um, you could probably tell which theological college they had attended. Or to put it more accurately, which one of them were rebels and, you know, went against that and which were conformists and stuck with what they'd been taught. Um, so I certainly found that in the commentaries, that people seem to be pushing for a certain line of certainty. And I found that frustrating. I ended up with a, a very non-famous commentary, which was actually written um, after many, many years of study and work by my ex-university tutor. He was in charge of my moral welfare, but he got most things right. He was a lovely chap, John Sweet. Um, he, was, he taught in the theological department of the university, and he was a canon at Chichester Cathedral. He sadly died a few years ago. But there was almost a joke in my college that John Sweet's commentary of Revelation would be coming out at some time. And some were probably thinking it might well be the millennium itself because he had taken years and years. But something about his commentary I found useful for tonight, and I'll be quoting him on and off, because he doesn't seem to be pushing a particular line. He seems to be pulling out of Revelation what seems to be there and then leaving the Holy Spirit for each one of us to interpret it. So what I'm going to do is set out later some of the views on this chapter, but I'm going to try and pull out as well the real truths that matter to us and that we need to get right and understand. So the eschatological stuff, as it might be called, the theological look at this, I'm going to take care on and to some extent avoid, but I am going to look at those themes which are vital to our future and that of the church and of the ultimate victory which is ours through Jesus. So, we tend to come at this, as I've already said, with the question, when and in what order is all this going to happen? And how do I prepare for it? And how will I know where I stand and where the church stands? And this is what the New Testament elsewhere says to us. Jesus himself said a few things about the signs of the end of the age. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, not even Jesus, but only the Father. That's from Matthew 24. We have similar uh, comments about the end of the age from Jesus in Mark 13 and in Luke 21. 1 Thessalonians, St. Paul said this, Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Our job is to be prepared, not to be all-knowing. And finally, in terms of New Testament teaching, the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 9 said this, 
Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And that is one of the key messages from this chapter. We are to be prepared and to be waiting. Uh, a rather interesting quote, which a number of people have ascribed to different other people, seems to have been put together around 1948, possibly by uh, somebody in Norway. It's also been given to Nostradamus, Mark Twain, and Samuel Goldwyn. But the quote itself is quite good, even if we don't really know where it came from. Predictions are dangerous, especially about the future. It's a little bit um, silly, but it, there's a lot of truth in there. So only God knows how things are going to pan out and when. What we have here in this chapter are dramatic pictures, pictures that convey a message. And it's the message that we need to understand not necessarily to be overwhelmed with the pictures. Although in much of church, the church's history, this has been used for the old, very colourful paintings that churches used to have on the walls. Pictures of hell, of heaven, of Jesus as judge, you know, all those kind of spectacular things. Taking a lot of this apocalyptic stuff rather literally. And probably we're not to do that. We're to pull out the truths that really matter. So, this chapter, of course, comes before chapters 21 and 22, which are fabulous, which are amazing, and we'll pull the whole book together. But this chapter, as with some of the more recent ones, is an essential one to clear the decks, to remove what is wrong, and open up the way for the second coming of Jesus, and for judgment itself, and then the new heaven, the new earth, the new bodies we will have with us being in, in heaven with him. And it's all rather beyond my little mind and probably beyond your little minds as well when you compare where we are and what we can ourselves actually be sure about and understand fully. I'm going to give you some of the theological stuff now just so I can say I've done it. And if you like it, great, go away and uh, do some more delving. I actually think it does matter, but not in the sense that it gives us something final to live our lives on. But it is important to look at where theologians have got to with, with this and then leave them with it, to be honest. That's my, my humble view anyway. So, this is the most controversial text probably in the New Testament, and therefore there are many interpretations of it. So here we go. There are those who are post-millennialists, who maintain that Jesus will return after a long period of blessing on earth, hence the prefix post. He will come after a lovely thousand years or so, an indeterminate amount of time really. Very few say it's exactly going to be a thousand years. I'm taking this from a, an article which is part of the Tough Passages series. That, that felt good to me having been struggling with it for quite a while. So after Jesus comes, following the millennium, the new heaven and the new earth will arrive. And the 1,000 years are not literal. 
And it's a period of time, a long period of time, this millennium, in this view, where the world will be transformed by the power of the gospel and the success of the church. Now, that's one view. I don't particularly myself see that happening yet, but some, some may. Now, the, the second one, there's three different groups on this, although there are actually probably more. There are subgroups as well, typically. Amillennialism means no millennium. Such a label is probably not the best description. Realise millennialism is better. I'm not going to go into that. But in this view, the thousand years stands again for a long period of time, and they will say different things, amillennialists. They'll say that this period began with Jesus' resurrection, and others will say some other time. And they're saying that this period will last until Jesus comes again. During this time, deceased believers reign spiritually with Jesus in heaven, in an intermediate state, awaiting their physical re resurrection and the renewal of all things. And Satan is bound in the sense of the cross has been victorious and dealt with all our sinfulness. And there are other bits and pieces to that. The final type of thinking around this chapter is the premillennial view. Premillennialists say that Jesus will literally return to earth before the millennium starts, the thousand years, whatever that is. And then everything will come to an end. And so we go on. Unfortunately, premillennialists can't agree with each other, and they're divided often into historic and dispensational premillennialists. There you are, I've thrown it out for you. You can take that away and study it and take a view, and if it's important to you, you can take it as far as you want to and decide where you stand. But as far as I'm concerned, I went through all this as a teenager, and it was way beyond me then, and it still is. Uh, and maybe that's the wisest line to take. But it's there, and it's scripture that's meant to help us. So don't be scared of looking at it more if you want to. So, I've done my duty there. Let's look at the actual verses in three sections. Verses 1 to 3, firstly, they build on chapter 19. And they envision the full and final defeat of Satan, the great deceiver of nations, the great deceiver of uh, careless individuals and sinners as we all are that's verses one to three the devil the serpent the dragon he is dealt with and we see that he is his work is going to end he will no longer be able to spoil things and mislead us and mess up the church even as well and the church at some point in the future verses four to six where you have these thrones uh, and you have a lovely picture of the royal and priestly church of the faithful who have followed the Lord. And there will be what we find in Hebrews 4 is described as a Sabbath of human history. There's a peaceful period where we enjoy the Lord as we are meant to. It's all based on Ezekiel chapters 36 to 48 and in particular Ezekiel 36 to 38 so if you want to do a bit more homework go to Ezekiel 
you can see the, the linkages. As always with Revelation, the Old Testament does come into play. Another interesting angle on these verses, uh, verses 1 to uh, 6, is that they actually represent the ultimate fulfillment of the Lord's Prayer that we say virtually every Sunday. These verses are talking about what it will be like when that prayer is finally answered in its fullness. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So there is going to be, before the end times, a lovely period of Jesus coming and of us being one with him. We may not live to see it ourselves, but that is coming, seems to be the message in this chapter. The description here of Jesus' actual coming and his kingdom and its establishment on earth fully, which is our preparatory work as the church, it's actually very brief. And it's been described by my old tutor, John Sweet, as being even rather restrained, rather gentle. It's not like other apocalyptic literature, which is even more way out, more games of thrones than this is. If we go to Revelation 21 and 22, as we'll do in the next two weeks, we will see that this chapter is essential. It is clearing the decks, it is dealing with the devil, removing his authority, and opening us up as the royal priesthood to what is to come, the coming of Jesus in victory, having defeated, conquered death, and destroyed it for those who have trusted in him. Another bit of homework, I'm being an ex-teacher tonight, but well worth looking at again to refresh memories, is 1 Corinthians 15, which talks about the resurrection of our human bodies and so on. That is another essential linked chapter uh, to Revelation 20. So, verses 7 to 10, Satan's doom in our Bibles. Here, uh, John is certainly referring back to that section, Ezekiel's prophecy, uh, chapters 38 to 39, about the invasion of Israel by Gog and Magog. And it's illustrating the, the brutal antagonism of many across the world. We know it today. We see it today. Uh, to God's truth. Those who persecute Christians, who seek to, uh, to really suppress the gospel and the truth there. And there is going to be a time when that will all end. That will disappear. But it is a precursor to the reign of Jesus and the ultimate victory that he has won and his rule being established on earth before the very end times. So, the good news is, in verses 7 to 10, that Satan will be finally destroyed. The mortal enemy of the church, the great deceiver, the dragon, as he's been called in Revelation, he will be removed once and for all. And just to get one thing straight, because I do worry about some of the medieval images that uh, have been around in the church, the torment, day and night, forever and ever, is for the unholy trinity. It's for Satan himself, 
it is for uh, the false prophet. And it's, it's really all part of that cleansing process, preparing us for the end times. So let's just rapidly move on uh, from the beast, the false prophet, and Satan, all those powers of the air, as I described elsewhere, and come to ourselves uh, and the judgment of the dead, the final judgment. This vision, to me, it's extremely grand. You know, you've got the great throne. And here, John Sweet says, all the structures of the world are stripped away and nothing veils men and women from God's presence. All the things we can hide behind, you know, human respectability or being churchgoers or whatever, they're going to be stripped away at some point. We're going to be face to face with our Lord. And that is going to be awesome in the correct sense of the word and maybe awful in the correct sense of that word. Something which, you know, is almost beyond imagination and maybe quite different from what our imaginations build up from this chapter. But it is in scripture as something that is going to happen here. So in Revelation verse, uh, chapters four and five, we learn of God's plan. In 20 to 22, we're going to have the fulfillment, the end of the age. Revelations chapters 6 to 19 are what John Sweet has described, I think rather nicely, as the long, drawn-out overcoming of people's opposition and stripping away of the structures behind which they hide. Why couldn't all this have happened in a simple sort of scene? Why couldn't John have had a simpler vision where it's all fairly straightforward? I'm not sure. But John is actually probably not concerned with the end, but what John Sweet has called, I think this is his best quote, he is concerned here with the swaying conflict of free choice in the present. A present, however, which can only be seen truly in the light of the end and the beginning, the final judgment and the sacrifice of the Lamb. In other words, all this swinging around, all this uncertainty, and the devil being let loose for a time, even though ultimately he is defeated. It's really about us being prepared for eternity and the church fulfilling its role in preparing the way. And we are privileged to be part of that. But we, as with everybody else, will be judged for what we have done, but above all, from what is in the book of life. It's not like the church directory. It's not a nice, nice list. You're either in or you're out. And this goes back, it's a, it's a sort of little echo of Exodus chapter 32, Moses and Ten Commandment territory. This divine ledger is a register of all citizens in the community. And in Moses's time, if you were not named, you did not belong. You are not one of the chosen people. And if your name was in but then was erased, you lost your citizenship. And we need to be taking all this very seriously. There's a sense of warning being put here to John's readers. It's not good news for those who take Jesus and his salvation for granted. And the book of life will have the last word.
That's what this chapter is saying. We need to be sure that we have trusted in Jesus, that we've sought to follow him and have not relied on our deeds, but our deeds have reflected our faith in him and the salvation he's won for us. So in conclusion, we're nearly there. What this chapter is showing us, beyond all that discussion, you know, we tend to be obsessed with verses 1 to 6, and we probably shouldn't be, because the further verses are probably of more importance to our eternal welfare. What are the key points? Right. Satan's power and his ability to deceive us and lead us up the garden path will be destroyed totally, as will death itself. If you remember that little uh, verse there, that... Um, death itself will be destroyed. We also learn here that God has a perfect grip and a perfect plan for the past, the present, and the future. And it's difficult for us to know exactly from this chapter and elsewhere in Revelation exactly what the running order is. There's no blueprint here, I don't think, for the future. But there are key elements of it that we need to be ready for and we need to be following closely Jesus himself, keeping our eyes fixed on him. That is the simple message to, to take if we're going to get this right. The future is horrendously uncertain for this country. Next week's going to be significant. But for all other kingdoms and countries too. The future is uncertain for all of us as individuals. A couple of weeks ago when we were on holiday, we learned that my cousin, aged only 57, significantly younger than me, had died. And we thought he was this big, strapping, very healthy chap, lovely bloke. But Tom has died. He's no longer there. We'll be at a funeral in a week's time. None of us know the future. It is uncertain. But we do need to be sure that our lives are based on the truths here. So, verses 1 to 6, we've had the binding of Satan and the reign of Jesus this thousand years 10 times 10 times 10, maybe, because that 10 was the perfect number. Maybe there's an element of that kind of symbolism in there. The short release of Satan, even after the, the crucifixion, when he was defeated by Jesus on the cross, but he will ultimately be destroyed. And then the final judgment, there will be a final judgment, and we will all be held to account the first six verses are fascinating, but our eternal welfare probably does depend on the rest of this chapter. And before I end with a, <clears throat> a couple of verses from uh, 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to give you a final comment from uh, John Sweet. Perhaps it is better not to ask what John believed about all these things, but to recognize that he uses pictures as Jesus used parables and attend to the point. And the point here we are to attend to is the utter disaster of not belonging to Jesus. We need to make sure that we are walking in that salvation and that our future is certain with him, even if the timetable is not absolutely clear to us. And then the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says this, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Amen.